welcome to Nelda Live. Join your host, Nelda Sue Yor, as she talks to the artists, dreamers, storytellers, and pioneers to learn about their inspiration and the tools and techniques they use to make a difference. You too might be inspired, because as Nelda likes to say, sometimes all it takes is a spark. Here's Nelda. Dr. Gundry, welcome to Nelda Live. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and it has really opened my eyes to how nutrition affects my health. So I'm really glad to have you here. I'm still learning. I'm sure the audience is too. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Nelda. I'm glad to be here. You are an accomplished heart surgeon. Uh, the accolades go on and on. That's amazing. But your focus now is really on health and longevity through nutrition, correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So can you tell us about that journey? Oh, gosh. Well, over 20 years ago now, um, when I was chairman and professor of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University here in Southern California, um, I met a gentleman who changed my life by the name of Big Ed. And Big Ed uh, is a real person from Miami, Florida, but he was in his late 40s, had inoperable coronary artery disease, at least that's what he was told. Uh, inoperable means you couldn't put stents in, you couldn't do bypasses because there wasn't any place to put them. And he would go around looking for surgeons like me to take his case and everybody turned him down uh, smartly. And after about six months of this, he came to Loma Linda, and I looked at his angiogram, the movie of his coronary arteries, and I agreed with everybody else, and I wasn't going to help him. And he said, well, here's the deal. I've gone on a diet. I've lost 45 pounds in the last six months. I went to a health food store. I'm taking all these supplements. Maybe I did something here in my heart. And I'm scratching my professor beard, going, good for you for losing all that weight, but that's not going to do anything in there. And I know what you did with all those supplements. You made expensive urine. You wasted your money. And I firm, firmly believe that. And he talked me into getting an, an, another angiogram. Um, and in six months' time, this guy cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his heart. Uh, they were gone. Now, this is impossible. Um, you know, we've thought we could slow down coronary artery disease, but we certainly didn't think we could reverse it. But there it was. I'm staring at two different angiograms. So um, I decided to use myself as a guinea pig because um, despite being a famous heart surgeon and running 30 miles a week, eating a low-fat diet, I was massively obese. I weighed 238 pounds. Um, I was running, going to the gym, um, I had high blood pressure, pre-diabetes, high cholesterol, and I was told it was genetic. You know, my father was the same way. So I put myself on a diet I had researched actually as my undergraduate thesis at Yale years ago on how you transform a great ape into a human being. And my parents had luckily kept my thesis. And so I put myself on my diet and lost 50 pounds my first year. And I started taking a bunch of supplements and sending my blood work up to the University of California at Berkeley. And lo and behold, uh, my high cholesterol went away, my high blood pressure went away, my prediabetes went away, my arthritis went away, my migraine headaches went away. So I would start patients that I operated on at, at Loma Linda on my program after I operated on them. Mm. And then after, and they 
their diabetes went away, their high blood pressure went away. So after about a year of doing this, I, I had uh, the worst day of my life. I was looking in the mirror on a Friday morning, which my wife still calls Black Friday for a different reason. And I said, you know, I've got this all wrong. Instead of operating on people and then teaching them how to avoid me, I should teach them how to eat and I'll never have to operate on them. Now, as a heart surgeon, that's really a dumb career move, um, and which it really is. Uh, so I resigned my position and set up an uh, institute uh, nearby in Palm Springs, California, and just ask people to uh, insurance-based and Medicare-based and Medi-Cal-based and ask people every three months, I want to do a bunch of blood work that insurance will pay for, and I want you to not eat certain things and eat other things, and I want you to go to Trader Joe's or Costco and take some supplements, and let's see what happens. And that was, uh, and so I tracked it as a research project, and I've been tracking it now for the last 20 years. And that, um, you know, started me writing books, presenting papers uh, in, on nutrition to the American Heart Association. And I guess the rest is history. So. Wow, that's amazing. I, I wonder how your colleagues felt about all that. But <laughs> so, so uh, you're, you're looking at all these changes in, in people's, the cardiovascular disease. And then now you have patients coming for autoimmune disorders. So how is nutrition playing a role in that as well? Well, it's interesting. My, my first book, which was written back in 2006, was called Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution. And in that book, uh, I had several patients with autoimmune diseases that reversed their autoimmune disease. And after that book came out, a lot of people with autoimmune disease would, would come to my clinics and say, what do you know about autoimmune disease? And I go, I know absolutely nothing about it, but I know a lot about the immune system because I'm a transplant immunologist. And I, I hold the world record for a pig to baboon heart transplant survival. Um, so I know how to fool and manipulate the immune system. So I'd say, heck, you know, you want to play? Let's, let's play. Let's see what the immune system is, is interested in about you. So now about 60 to 70% of all the patients I see are patients with autoimmune disease. And I've presented uh, my work uh, at the American Heart Association, taking 102 patients with biomarker-proven autoimmune disease, most of whom are immunosuppressant drug users. And in six months' time, 95 out of 102 were no longer positive for any biomarker for their autoimmune disease and off of their immunosuppressant drug. Not a bad track record. Not bad. 90, 94%. So, um, and we, so I got interested in the immune system and their role in scanning, if you will, for leaky gut. And if you had asked me, 15 years ago, if I believed in leaky gut, I probably would have laughed you out of the room as pseudoscience. And now uh, I believe, and actually many people have proven, that Hippocrates was right uh, when he said 2,500 years ago that all disease begins in the gut. He said this 2,500 years ago without the wow. Human Microbiome Project. And so I... I think he's absolutely right. And uh, I have paraphrased him to say all disease begins in the gut and all disease ends in the gut. 
And so that's what we do is manipulate the gut. So let's talk about that. So it's such a buzzword, if you will, right now, right? Uh, gut health. So talk about, uh, tell me what the importance is of the gut to our health. Well, we've, you know, I had, um, I had Donald Kessler on my podcast a, a few, well, last month, um, Donald Kessler was head of the FDA. He was also dean of Harvard Medical School, sorry, Yale Medical School, my old alma mater, and also UCSF Medical School. And uh, he and I were reminiscing that when we went to medical school, uh, we thought the gut was this hollow tube, and its purpose basically was to break down carbohydrates, proteins, and fats and absorb them, and whatever you didn't absorb, came out your rear end. And that was kind of the end of that. And what no, nobody knew and until very recently is that within our gut, there are five to six pounds of 100 trillion bacteria, probably 500 trillion viruses, a bunch of fungi. So this is a complex ecosystem, more complex than any tropical rainforest. And it has a symbiotic relationship with us, its host. And rather than crap coming out of our rear end, in fact, this tropical rainforest actually controls almost everything that's going to happen to us because we're actually a condominium for bacteria, if you will. And they control our fate. And by went into that in The Longevity Paradox, one of my bestsellers. And in my next book, The Energy Paradox, it gets even crazier. Uh, they actually control our energy. And uh, there's an entire communication system that we've speculated existed, how bacteria actually tell us what to do, tell our mitochondria, the little energy-producing organelles in all of our cells, what to do, how to make energy, how much energy to make. And it's, it's kind of like I use the example. So here, here's my cell phone. And, uh, you know, I could get a message from you saying, well, we're on, you know, where are you? And that, ma that message magically appears, you know, on my cell phone. And you and I think nothing about it that, well, it's coming through the air and it magically appears and it turns into words. Or I can watch a video on my cell phone. But we to think that little single-cell organisms have a communication system to talk to us is pseudoscience. It's, it's fancy, fancy, you know, it's like fantastic. But the same system actually exists. And the really exciting thing is the last few years, people have broken the code of how bacteria talk to us. And it's, it's really as exciting as I write in the book is breaking the Enigma code of World War II, which was the German code uh, that was broken successfully in Britain. And, you know, it's just like, holy cow, you know, you know this is how they talk to us. It's really interesting that it is. There's this conversation going on. I think I find that fascinating. Also, when you talk about us being like a tropical rainforest, I think that 
in and of itself, if we can really try to get that concept right, that we really look at the body totally differently. And I think that it gives you just a different lens completely, uh, which makes all of these things that, that, that you have discovered and things that others are discovering, you know, make sense, right? Um, so how are we really undermining our gut health? <laughs> so many ways, I know. Yeah, we, we've done, uh, you know, in, in my bestseller, The Plant Paradox, um, part of what people in a way have missed in the plant paradox was that there, I call them the seven deadly disruptors, but we won't go into all of them. But one of the things that we didn't know, a lot of things we didn't know, in the mid-1970s, when I was in medical school, broad spectrum antibiotics were introduced. And quite frankly, they were miraculous because before we had to try to figure out what bacteria was causing an infection and do cultures and then find an antibiotic that might work against that bacteria. When broad spectrum antibiotics, uh, like the word sounds, they killed just about everything. And so what we didn't realize naively was they not only killed the bacteria that was supposedly causing our infection, but they killed all the bacteria in our gut. So it was like throwing napalm on this tropical rainforest in our gut. And I was actually, interestingly enough, uh, at my medical school, Georgia, uh, we actually did fecal enemas in the mid-1970s for people with C. difficile. We didn't even know the name of the bug back then. But my uh, professor, Arlie Mansberger, said, you know, I think these new antibiotics have wiped out everything and this bug has taken over, and medical students actually took craps in a wearing blender, seriously, and we gave wow. people fecal enemas back in the 1970s. So, so number one, we've killed off our microbiome, and there's 10,000 different species of these bacteria, and we now know that these different bacteria do different jobs for other bacteria, and they actually talk to other bacteria. They even do what's called quorum sensing, which is like a rave party. Uh, They actually count the number of different bacteria arriving at a certain area, and then they make their move. And they text message each other to, and they count how many exist. I mean, they're complex organisms. So so that's number one. Number two, uh, we've unwittingly fed antibiotics to all the animals we eat. And those antibiotics uh, actually made animals grow faster. By the way, they make us grow faster too. But unwittingly, we've been eating antibiotics in all the animals we eat. Whether it says antibiotic-free or not, I can, we can go down that road. I can tell you that most of the chickens and beef and pork we eat actually, actually still have antibiotics in them. So the second thing that happened is we've uh, started swallowing large amounts of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, and those are ibuprofen, naproxen, Aleve, Advil. People forget that these were introduced in the mid-1970s, and they were prescription only, and they were so dangerous that you could only take them for two weeks because they were so dangerous. Now, of course, uh, we eat them like candy. We give them to our children. And the reason they were so dangerous is they actually blow holes, craters in the lining of our gut. 
Now, why didn't we know that? Well, drug companies knew this. That's why they were licensed for only two weeks. But we couldn't see where the damage was being done with our gastroscopes, with our endoscopy, because we couldn't see down in the small bowel uh, where the damage was being done. So I tell people every time you take an ibuprofen, um, you literally are swallowing a hand grenade. Wow. And yeah. So third thing that happened is um, proton pump inhibitors, acid-reducing drugs were introduced as a way of preventing ulcers, and they were miraculous, and they're called proton pump inhibitors, so Prilosec, Nexium, Protonics. Sadly, we didn't know that mitochondria work as proton, or use, make energy moving protons, pumping protons. And just because we stopped pumping protons in acid-producing cells in our stomach, we didn't realize that our heart has proton pumps, our brain has proton pumps, and that's why there's now a huge association with using these acid-reducing drugs and producing heart failure and dementia. And in fact, to this day, there's still a warning that you should never take these drugs longer than two weeks' time. And yet I have patients when they first see me that have been on them for five to ten years for their heart failure. And we wonder why we're all, you know, so sick. Ah. Lastly, glyphosate Roundup and its cousins. Um, glyphosate uh, use was developed to uh, spray on genetically modified crops, GMO crops, particularly soybeans, um, so that you could kill weeds and the plant would still live. The problem is that uh, glyphosate was proved because it uses, it paralyzes a pathway that plants basically produce energy called the shikimate pathway. What nobody told us was that bacteria use the shikimate pathway. And lo and behold, when glyphosate enters our system, it changes and destroys our gut microbiome. Now, maybe that's okay if you avoid GMO plants, but what's happened in the last few years is that glyphosate is really good at killing things. And commercial agriculture wants to harvest crops on a schedule, and it wants to harvest dry crops because it's a whole lot easier to harvest a dead cornfield, a dead wheat field, a dead oat field, you name it, soybean field. So now conventional crops are sprayed with Roundup prior to harvest. And nobody's going around washing the Roundup off of wheat, off of corn, off of soybeans, off of canola, off of oats. And these are then baked into our breads and cookies and crackers, and they're fed to our animals. So we now have this overwhelming amount of glyphosate in all of us. I mean, like 95% of breastfeeding mothers have glyphosate in their breast milk. Now, most California wines have glyphosate, and most breakfast cereals, including organic oats, have glyphosate. Oh, that hurts. Okay. Yeah. So, so we've done all this damage to our gut, um, but you say we can heal it, right? I mean, because I've, I've, I'm at the age where I just had all the tests done, right? The colonoscopies, the camera swallowing, the endoscopy, all, all this stuff, because it's time, right? Got to have all that done, right? But nobody can tell me what's going on inside my gut. <laughs> they can say the structures are okay, but, you know, but 
what do we do? How, how do we heal our gut? Well, I think the, the really important part uh, of healing our gut, first of all, um, I think that we should try to avoid agents that are designed to uh, cause leaky gut, and that's been the subject of my research now for 20 years, and these are plant proteins that are called lectins. Uh, Dr. Fasano, who used to be at Johns Hopkins, now at Harvard, showed that a lectin called gluten is really good at causing leaky gut and showed the mechanism that that happened. And if you think about it from a plant standpoint, plants uh, do not want to be eaten. They have a life, uh, just like animals do, and they want to grow and reproduce and make sure their seeds, their babies are fine, so they have defense mechanisms. And one of these are these proteins called lectins. So we remove lectins from uh, people's diets, and they're in most grains, they're in beans, they're in peanuts, which are a bean, they're in the nightshade family, like tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, potatoes, even goji berries or nightshades. Uh, chia seeds have lectins in them. Oh, you're <laughs> describing the basic Southern garden. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we have to forget, believe it or not, Americans did not eat a tomato until the mid-1800s. Wow. They were actually uh, in, in, in Italy. They did not eat them for 200 years after their native son Columbus brought them back. Uh, in, in fact, uh, they were called poison apples um, in, in Italy. Isn't that uh, fascinating? Yeah, and Americans were afraid to death of them because they were part of the deadly nightshade family. Wow. Before you go any further, tell us what leaky gut exactly is, and then we'll keep going. All right. So the lining of our gut, those of you who just watched the U.S. Open tennis tournament, mm. the lining of our gut is the same surface area as a tennis court. And all of us go, what? You know, there's no tennis court down there. Well, in fact, it is the same surface area. And we have a kind of a fatal flaw. The lining of our gut is only one cell thick. Wow. And those cells are held together. Um, those of us who are old enough to remember a game called Red Rover, Red Rover, where we all locked arms, two rows of kids, and we tried to crash through. Uh, it's outlawed now. It's too dangerous. Anyhow, <laughs> so these, these cells, uh, everything we swallow is on one side, and on the other side is is us, and about 70 to 80% of all of our white blood cells, our immune system, is on the other side of the wall of gut. Why? Because this is where mischief can come across. So normally, you've got a pretty good impenetrable barrier, but when lectins, among other things, attach to the wall of the gut, they produce a compound called zonulin that was discovered by Dr. Pisano, and it breaks these tight junctions, these locked arms. So now you've got a space between the a gap between these cells. And through that gap come foreign proteins like lectin. You can think of them as splinters. If you think about a splinter under your finger, it gets all red. Pieces of bacteria. Now it's been proven that living bacteria get through the wall of the gut. So that, in essence, is leaky gut. The problem with that is our immune system is, if you will, our border patrol. And they see an invasion, an army coming across, and they go, oh my gosh, 
you know, we need to sound the alarm. We need to go to threat level five. We need to scramble the fighter jets and we're going to go to war. Well, most of us are now convinced that this chronic inflammation that we talk about and that inflammation is the cause of most of our problems, certainly in chronic disease, that chronic inflammation actually is from leaky gut and our immune system being activated and sending out signals that there's something wrong down here and protect yourselves. Um, Dale Bredesen, who's a good friend of mine now, who wrote The End of Alzheimer's uh, book, uh, he and I are both convinced that most of dementia, the massive epidemic of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and memory loss, is actually because of uh, leaky gut and correspondingly leaky brain. Wow. You talked about ibuprofen and um, those medicines like that. Yeah. Um, how does aspirin fit in? You know, it's been years since I've had anybody say, hey, take an aspirin. Uh, is, is aspirin as dangerous? Well, so aspirin is an NSAID, believe it or not. Uh, but aspirin... Um, got into trouble because we used it for you know pain relief and aspirin did cause and will cause stomach ulcers uh, and so the miracle of the modern NSAID was that they didn't cause stomach ulcers so everybody's going oh yay now we can relieve pain and we won't get stomach ulcers the reason nobody bothered to look was that these were causing these ulcers lower down in the intestines where we couldn't see. Mm. The drug companies knew, uh, and I show lots of references that they knew about this. Um, but so uh, that's part of the problem. But getting back to aspirin, uh, there is one benefit of a tiny bit of aspirin, which is salicylic acid. One of the reasons that a lot of trials looking at fish oil on heart disease, etc., haven't shown a huge benefit is they didn't control for whether there were any resolvents in the diet. And I actually like my patients a couple times a week to take a enteric coated aspirin, uh, an 81 milligrams. They don't have to take it every day. And it's not to prevent heart disease, but it's to activate fish oil into resolvents. So, Dr. Gundry, you have a quote that I love. In fact, I think this is probably one of the things that opened my eyes more than anything else. And that was, we don't, what we don't eat. Let me say that again. What we don't eat is more important than what we do eat. I would love for the audience to understand that. I think it's just really a fascinating uh, statement. Well, the, the interesting thing is everybody talks about you know, eating anti-inflammatory foods. So let's just use that as an example. The, the problem is if inflammation begins in the gut and ends in the gut, then what you really want to do is avoid the foods that are going to produce leaky gut. So, and I use the example, let's suppose you and I are out on a lake or the ocean in a rowboat, and we get a leak in the bottom of the boat. Now, we've really got two choices. Uh, we can get a bucket, and we can start bailing. And if 
the leak gets better, bigger, like the old commercial, we're gonna need a bigger bucket. And so we can bail. And this, to me, is eating anti-inflammatory foods or even taking anti-inflammatory supplements. But if there's a hole in the bottom of the boat, it's a whole lot easier to put your finger in the hole and plug it. And so my idea is, why don't we get rid of the things that are causing the holes, the leaks in the gut in the first place? And there's, you know, there's really strong, strong, strong evidence about what these foods have the potential to do and get rid of the things, for instance, like NSAIDs, like proton pump inhibitors, like glyphosate, that contribute to this leak. And when we do that, the rest is kind of easy. So... <laughs> What what shouldn't we be eating? What should we be eating? So, I guess. you know, one of the, my research at Yale on, in human evolution was we, we were a great ape that ate, quite frankly, a lot of leaves, and we would eat fruit in, in season. Incidentally, all great apes only gain weight once a year during fruit season, and fruit only ripens once a year. We there was no such thing as 365 days of fruit. And fruit is how we gain weight for the winter when times are rough. So uh, when, as we evolved over a couple million years, um, we eventually, obviously, began eating actually a lot of shellfish, a lot of fish, and eventually large animals and small animals. But none of us ever ate grains or beans because they were actually quite toxic because of the lectin content unless you cooked them and cooked them a very long time. And fire probably got harnessed around 100,000 years ago, maybe, maybe earlier than that. But we really only started growing and cultivating grains and beans 10,000 years ago, which was not very long ago. In fact, most people don't know that rice has only been cultivated for 8,000 years. So these are very modern additions to our diet. And humans, before this cultivation, usually stood about six feet tall. And our brains were actually 15% larger than they are today. And we shrunk, actually, dramatically. We lost about a foot in height um, during this time. Uh, when you, I lived in England during part of my training, and you see all these little beds and the, the little you know, soldier uh, armor uniforms, and you know, they were very small people. And it wasn't until, actually, modern times that we became tall again. So these are, these are really effective anti-nutrients. And so that's one thing. And the other thing that people forget is that all of us were originally from Africa, Asia, or Europe. And actually, originally, we're all from Africa. And none of us had ever encountered a plant species from North or South America or Central America until 500 years ago when Columbus started Colombian trade. And I submit that that's a very short time period uh, in evolution to become adjusted to these brand new uh, foreign substances. And so much of our modern 
tastes actually are for these American plants, like the nightshades I mentioned, like peanuts, like quinoa. Uh, and when you, when you look at what cultures did to make these foods edible so that they actually didn't do them harm, um, let me use an example of corn, if I may. So um, the Indians, uh, the corn they knew was actually incredibly dangerous for them to eat. So they would treat it with lye. Uh, because and pasole for anybody who uh, is from the West, uh, hominy grits is hominy. So that's lye treated corn. Uh, and it actually keeps an incredibly important uh, vitamin called niacin from being leached out of, out of corn and you. Unfortunately, uh, the conquistadors and the conquerors didn't know this or they didn't bother to notice while they were killing everybody. And so when corn was brought back to Europe, uh, it really took over outside of Milan, Italy, in northern Italy, and it became polenta, I mean, it became their staple. Mm -hmm. And they didn't know that you had to treat corn this way. And there was, for several centuries, a bunch of sadly mentally retarded children called Cretans that uh, were because of eating corn, their brains didn't develop properly. And uh, so, in fact, the French, because of that, banned corn as unfit for human consumption and should only be fed to pigs. And that's why, to this day in France, you will rarely see corn on a menu. And it was because of their border with Italy. So the point of all this is native cultures have figured out how to treat these foods. Uh, I could go on and on about what the yeah. Incas did to quinoa to make it edible. Um, it's, uh, it, they didn't just boil it and eat it. They didn't. Huh. That's fascinating. And, I mean, for instance, rice. Four billion people use rice as their staple, yet four billion people take the haul off of rice before they eat it. And even though all the good stuff's supposed to be in the hall, everybody knows that. Well, 4 billion people have been taking the hall off of rice for 8,000 years, and they can't be that stupid. Right. That's because the hall contains the lectins that were bothering people. Well, since we're talking around the world, let's talk about, let's talk about the blue zones. Um, so I think you actually kind of live in, in a blue zone, right? So Loma Linda, yeah. Loma Linda is the only uh, North American blue and zone. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I joke and laugh because <laughs> I'm the only nutritionist that's actually spent most of their career in a blue zone. And <laughs> people attack me as knowing nothing about blue zones. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, guess I guess I do. <laughs> so why are they important? What do, what do they teach us? What are we are learning from that? So I think one of the things that's important, and, you know, Dan Bruckner, the uh, journalist who invented the word blue zone, and there are actually a lot more blue zones than the ones that he described. And incidentally, Okinawa was one of his blue zones. And Okinawa is no longer the longest living people in Japan. Nagoya province now claims that. But blue zones are places that have extreme longevity compared to other places. And not only longevity, but great health span. Um, 
And like I talk about in the longevity paradox, uh, we all want to live a long time. We just don't want to get old. And that's the problem. Most of us, uh, our health span is shrinking even as our lifespan is potentially going higher. Although for the last three years, our lifespan has actually decreased three years in a row. So these, these are places with extreme longevity. And people have tried to figure out, okay, what is it about these places that makes things different? And there has been an argument that has been perpetrated that all of these places live a long time because all they eat is grains and beans, which quite frankly is absolutely false. Um, Okinawa, since I brought it up, the original Okinawan diet was 85% purple sweet potatoes. It's not a bean, it's not a grain. Mm -hmm. Rice constitutes about 5% of their diet, and it's white rice, not brown rice. And soy, fermented soy, miso, constitutes another 5% of their diet. So they actually don't eat you know, rice and beans as a major part of their diet. The um, Sardinians use a liter of olive oil per week. That's about, and same with Crete. Uh, another blue zone. They use a liter of olive oil per week. And yet the Okinawans use almost no oil at all. And the, the fat they use is actually lard from pigs. So to say, well, everybody should be eating a almost no fat bean and rice diet to live a long time is, is absolutely not true. What I've suggested is the common factor that unites all of these blue zones is the Animal protein actually constitutes a small part of their diet. Mm. And in the Adventist health study, which is really one of the longest uh, continuous health studies of the Adventist population, Loma Linda is an Adventist health school. Um, and I, I'm not Adventist, but I've had the pleasure you know, of working there for most of my career. If you look at the Adventists who are the longest living people in the United States, and then break down their diet, the vegans actually have the longest lifespan of the very long-lived Adventists, followed by the vegetarians, followed by the pescatarians. Adventists technically aren't supposed to eat fish or chicken, uh, but I can tell you uh, they cheat. Um, <laughs> and so one of my colleagues, uh, Gary Murray, has just tracked uh, these folks now for years and years and years. And so sadly, uh, I think meat or lack thereof, animal protein or lack thereof is one of the things that unites the blue zones. That's very interesting. Now you mentioned olive oil. So I've heard you speak about drinking Consuming. You said the purpose of food is what? <laughs> get olive oil into your mouth. <laughs> I love that. So how much do you really think you consume a week? I mean, do you know? So, yeah, my wife and I go through uh, about a liter to a liter and a half of olive oil per week. Um, David Promarter, who uh, has become my friend, who wrote Grain Brain, uh, he and his wife both use a liter of olive oil per week. Um, and I understand avocados. Is that right? Yeah, avocados are another great choice. You should have at least an avocado a day. It's uh, 
But if I had a choice between avocados and olive oil, I'd go for the olive oil. Go for the olive oil. Okay. I have one other question. What about mushrooms? How do they fit into nutrition? Great question. Uh, so mushrooms became fascinating to me because they have uh, some compounds which are called polyamines. And one of the polyamines is called spermidine. I can let you guess where that word came <laughs> from. Um, and it turns out that polyamines are probably one of the most health span, longevity promoting compounds there are. And so mushrooms have a lot of them. There was a study published out of Singapore a few years ago looking at people who consume two cups of mushrooms per week on a you know, basis, and they had a 90% reduction in dementia compared to people who didn't eat two cups of mushrooms a week. And believe it or not, even the humble button mushroom will do just fine for this. And if you think about it, um, mushrooms are mostly water, and so it doesn't take a whole lot of work to eat two cups of mushrooms. Uh, right. You cook them down, that's really not much. So I think, um, you know, getting mushrooms into our diet is, is probably one of the most important things we can do. I think so too. It's interesting because I had just asked my team a few weeks ago, I said, study mushrooms, let's get on mushrooms, guys. We got to, I need to understand, you know, you know, because they did, you know, in, in, in my lifetime too, they got a bad rap at, at one point, right? And they just weren't studied anymore. And so now we need to really open up the door to that and really understand, you know. Yeah, there's, um, uh, there's some fascinating uh, compounds in mushrooms for memory. One of them is called ergothionine. And uh, I had one of uh, the mushroom experts on my podcast recently, and you're right, because mushrooms were mostly water, people for years and years said, well, they have no nutritional benefit. There's nothing there. There's, there's no protein. There's, no, there's nothing there. And, and yet you looked at cultures who consume mushrooms, and I got fascinated with this crazy little naked mole rat, which is the longest living rat. And these guys eat a lot of fungi in the root system mm -hmm. of plants. And so I go, hmm, these guys are eating funguses and why you know why are they living so long so now we know that mushrooms have all these fantastic compounds um, so they're not just water here's the audience question you ready what are your yep. top secrets for looking amazing at 70 oh the top secrets uh, well we didn't get into uh, fasting or time controlled eating or time restricted eating but uh, as I made clear in the longevity paradox and I'll make even clearer in the energy paradox. If you wanted one trick to, you know, extend your health span, that is to restrict the time period during the day that you were actually consuming calories. And I, you know, I've since for 18 years now from January through June every year during the week, I eat all my calories in a two-hour window, so that 22 out of 24 hours a day I'm fasting. And I've been doing that for 18 years. I was the first person to write about this in, in my first book. And now, of course, it's all the rage. Um, but there's probably the ideal window is about six-hour time period. 
And in the energy paradox, I teach people how we're going to get you there to around a six to seven hour window. It's actually, you got to do it right or, or you'll never do it and you'll fail, quite frankly. But the good news is there's a recent human study that shows that a four hour window doesn't give an additional benefit. So in other words, six hours. So what does that mean? It means you break fast at noon, at lunch hour. And that's break fast. That's where the word came from. And then you finish eating at six o'clock at night. So that's a six hour time window. Now you can move it. You could break fast at one and finish at seven. You could break fast at two and finish at eight. And so all of these things uh, are optional. But uh, that time window, if you wanted one trick to extend your health span, that would be it. You know, it's so interesting. I started that about two months ago, maybe three. Amazing. I don't have the exhaustion at three o'clock in the afternoon. It is, had I not done it though, Dr. Gundry, I would have never believed you, to be honest with you. It is really, uh, you know, so so glad to hear you say that. And um, yeah, I mean, remember we were actually designed not to eat breakfast. Um, the idea that we crawled out of our cave and said, "What's for breakfast?" is just, I mean, ludicrous. There was no breakfast. There was no storage system. Um, you know, what's in the pantry? You know, right. And it turns out that breakfast was actually first started being eaten in England in Victorian times. Even, I mean, so literally 140 years ago is when yeah. breakfast. And breakfast really got started by the cereal companies to convince us that we had to have a healthy breakfast. <laughs> kind of like our Hallmark cards, our celebrations, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right. There's a, every day is a celebration. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with me. I would love to have you back, especially when your new book comes out. Um, and uh, I just, uh, before you go, I'd like to uh, ask, there's one thing that you told me that you uh, wanted when I asked you if I could interview you, and your direct answer was help charity water. Could you tell us about that before you go? Yeah, charity water, uh, charity colon water is, um, is a not-for-profit that goes around and basically drills wells for people in, in Africa and in India and in Southeast Asia, wherever people do not have clean drinking water. And I can tell you, I've, I've been on one of these missions to Ethiopia where women uh, have to walk two hours each direction to a filthy stream where cattle are crapping with jerry cans, uh, which are five-gallon jerry cans, and carry these on their back uh, past hyenas, past roving gangs twice a day. They can't go to school. Um, and... The water is filthy, they have dysentery, they have diarrhea, and this organization just selflessly goes out and drills wells. And the changes that I see in people's lives are just so dramatic. And yeah, we need help here as well, but um, the idea that women should be four hours a day carrying dirty water and not being able to go to school is something that we can put a stop to. 
Okay, guys, join Dr. Gundry in that. Uh, Parody Water. Thank you. Thank you so much and look forward to what's coming up with you. And uh, can't wait to see the new book. Yeah, Energy Paradox will be out in March of 2021. And so, we can uh, find you where? You can find, well, if I don't appear on your computer every day, I'm doing something wrong. But uh, So you can find me at GundryMD.com, DrGundry.com, the Dr. Gundry podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I've got two YouTube channels. I've got two or three Instagram accounts. Uh, Dr. Stephen Gundry is one. So please, please follow me. Uh, love my podcast. And Audience, you will not be uh, sorry that you did it. You will absolutely learn and you will benefit from everything that Dr. D Gundry is sharing. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and way, the way you give back. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All righty. Mm -hmm.